0: Let us take a journey back into time. Completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my God. <laughs> he's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time.
1: It's not obvious that we are professionals. you are not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs>
2: But I'm serious. Can
1: we start already? Hey, welcome back, Unbalanced listeners. It's Brian. Uh, This is part two of the Devil in the Belfry time in the Old South series. Because I made the decision to leave a lot of our riffing in and turn it into a first episode instead of cutting it out, uh, we have kind of an abrupt start to episode two. Uh, because it wasn't supposed to be an episode two so uh, i hope that's okay we're going to jump right back into the story back to the story here it goes So the South is not a region known for democracy. It was politically very it's it's politically conservative, traditionalistic uh, generally, but uh, perhaps the most universally democratic feature of Southern life was the presence of publicly accessible time. This was true in cities and in the countryside and generally existed in the form of church bells and church clocks. So rural churches without clocks still rang their bells to mark the hours and in the antebellum south uh, watches or personal clocks were always uh, a statement of fashion, a symbol of cultural capital, and a symbol of social status, while also being an instrument of power and precision. We can kind of understand that today, right? They, I mean, anybody wearing a Rolex understands that. But even more so, today, most people rely on their phones for the time. A watch has become more of a status or a statement
0: piece. It's a f- as, fashion piece.
1: Yeah, yeah. as much yep. as it is a way. And a fashion right. piece is nothing but a, but a, a, a intent, an intent at a cultural marker or a social status marker, right? Yep look at me sure look at me sure i'm the captain now the precise ownership numbers of like clocks and watches can be kind of tricky but we can make guesses based on certain data so for example in 1815 north carolina put a two dollar tax on every gold watch and a one dollar tax on every silver watch so again you sort of have to assume that you wouldn't put a tax on those things unless that was actually going to be a revenue generator for this for the state Right, Like you wouldn't tax gold watches two dollars and silver watches one dollar, and this wasn't ones that were bought. it was for anyone that you possessed that was then you would then pay that as part of your taxes, okay, There were no income taxes for the record, but you did have property taxes mm-hmm. by eighteen forty two tariffs were put on foreign clocks um so again, like this says something, but um in spite of the fact that tariffs were put on foreign clocks to protect northern clock manufacturers. By 1845, Americans were still importing thirty thousand eight hundred six dollars worth of clocks and watches. Anyway, uh, a huge number of them going to the South. A new round of tariffs in 1846, again to protect northern manufacturers, had like basically no imp- uh, effect at all. As import imports after the tariff reached thirty one thousand four hundred ninety four dollars in clocks and watches. Um, and clocks and watches made up about two and a half percent of the total value of all imported goods to the U S which again, admittedly two hundred, two and a half percent doesn't sound like a lot. When you think about all the goods and services yeah. out there for just for clocks and watches, it's a pretty huge percentage.
0: <clears throat> it was a booming industry.
1: <clears throat> yeah. So here's a crazy stat by 1851. France alone exported $59,404 worth of clocks and $1.7 million worth of watches, and another $14,000 worth of watch parts to the United States. Unlike the North, the South never had a clock or watchmaking industry um you know they didn't really have clock makers or watchmakers people would advertise themselves as watchmakers but they basically were just like repairmen or like you know artisans like repair Mm -hmm. um none of them ever actually made watches or clocks but they would import parts and stuff in order to do repairs so i guess they made watches in that sense i'm not sure but the this this number of of clock and watch repairmen would steadily grow in the south over the years and the number just um the, the only reason that number could grow was because southerners Provided more than enough business to draw more people Mm -hmm. to the craft, right? All right. Repairs seem to have been fairly common, um, indicating that Southern planners took a great deal of care in maintaining their watches. So it wasn't just a status symbol. It was something that was worth keeping up with, right? It wasn't just, you know, uh, sort of um, like base fashion. It was something serious. For one example, from 1846 to 61, South Carolina planner James Sparkman had his watch repaired eight times by various local craftsmen. Hmm. So, I mean, again, like that's like seriously taking care of it, although he did break it eight times. So I'm not sure how seriously he's taking care of it. (laughs) Uh, Planter David Gavin sent his watch to two different repairmen six different times between 1857 and 1861 for a total of $16.60 worth of repairs, which is about just under $600 today. Um, Uh More humble members of the communities would actually even petition some of the elites to help them get repairs. For one example, in 1856, uh, the Char- a Charleston judge and lawyer named Mitchell King received an appeal for assistance from somebody named uh, William Frappman, who sent his watch to a guy named Mr. French for repairs, but the watch didn't improve after it was sent back. Frapman wrote to King hoping that he would persuade Mr. French to spend more time trying to repair the watch properly. So, again, this is the oligarchic nature of, of a conservative society, right? Like, well, I tried to get this guy to do it, but I'm just a nobody. So I'm going to ask this judge who is a somebody. And there's no indication that Frapman and King were, like, friends. He just, like, uh, he actually sent a, somebody who knew King with a letter asking for this. So he basically knew a guy that knew, knew this guy. And so he sent a letter, you know what I mean? Like, hey, you're friends with that guy? He's a powerful judge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Again, it sort of shows you how the oligarchy works.
0: It's not who you know. It's, what, it's not what you know. to who you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right.
1: If we uh, compare the Charleston district, the Charleston district of South Carolina with Lawrence County, we can actually get a sense of the urban-rural divide in timepiece ownership in the South, right? So for a little background, Charleston had one of the largest seaports in North America. It was uh, a chief conduit for trade in cotton, rice, and indigo. Um, it was the most populous of South Carolina's districts with over 72,000 people in 1850. Of the 72,000, just over 44,000 were enslaved. There was a small number of free blacks, and whites made up about 39% of the population, uh, roughly 28,000 people. So, you know, a significant enslaved majority in Charleston. Lawrence County, by contrast, had no urban centers. It was a more typical agricultural sort of southern town or southern area. It was poorer than Charleston, but, you know, still lots of planners. Uh, The ratio of enslaved to free was almost even, 11,953 enslaved people to 11,454 free, so real close, 500 more slaves, so a slight majority. But the total population in the whole county was just 23,407. So, again, the total population in in just the Charleston district was 72,000. Lawrence County, the whole county only has 23,000 in 1850. So, looking at the numbers, um, the percentage of free people who owned a timepiece in Charleston was about... 36% at the end of the 18th century, and it was about 10% in Lawrence County. But by 1865, those percentages had risen to 66% in Charleston and 71% in Lawrence. Obviously, we're only talking about white people here, but like, um, you know, not not when I, most of the time throughout this whole thing, when I say Southerners, I'm talking about white Southerners. In part two, we will talk about black Southerners. So mostly we're just talking about white Southerners in this episode. Anyway, these numbers also might be a little misleading. The fact that only 66% of Charleston uh of people in Charleston had a watch um might have been because it was 1865. Uh they were maybe more likely to have hidden valuables when the Union army approached. Uh as evidenced by like mm-hmm. the evidence shows like a 9% uh, decline in Charleston slave owner uh watch ownership between 1863 and 1865 so for some reason in those two years of the civil war like there's this like 10 almost 10 percent drop in how many charleston planters own watches which suggests that they probably hid them to try and keep them from being captured right uh as valuable property or whatever um according to the property inventories in lawrence county which again is a smaller county it's not going to be run over the same way charleston is um there was still, there was also a decline in the same years, 1863 to 65, but that decline was only 4%. So, you know, again, it's suggesting the same thing, but the numbers reveal, um, the penetration of watch time into the white Southern consciousness, but it doesn't tell us how clock time found its way onto the plantations. From the 1830 to 1860, Southern planters were increasingly, excuse me, were increasingly wary of importing Northern goods as they felt it made them, quote, dependent on the North the Southern planter barters with the North the labor of three or four agricultural hands for that of two at the most three mechanics or manufacturing operatives. Is it then to be wondered at that the South does not keep pace with the North? End quote. While Southern planters were amazed by the, quote, marvels of invention, end quote, like the, the, quote, electric clock, which wakes you up, tells you what time it is, and lights a lamp for you at any time you please, end quote. They were also really concerned about Quote, what we pay New England to support her John Browns.
2: John Brown's body lies a-moldren in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldren in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldren in the grave. His soul goes marching on.
1: On the eve of the Civil War, yeah, it was estimated that New England, quote, sells annually to the South $60 million of merchandise, including well. clocks. End quote. Yeah. So we knew, we know they imported a large number of clocks and watches, but we haven't yet shown if, and how Southern planners could deploy them as Lewis Mumford wrote, quote, the clock is not merely a means of keeping track of the hours, but of synchronizing the actions of men. That's a good quote. End quote. Mm-hmm. So put as a question? How would planners merge the long sweeping rhythms of nature with the clipped constant and regular ticks of the mechanical timepiece? So It's probably important to note here that new technologies need a kind of training ground, right? A beta test, you might say in today's
0: early adopters.
1: Yeah. You, you need a a no man's land where people kind of who want to implement the new technology have room to experiment with it, to see what it can do. Uh, You know, it kind of needs fertile ground to take root and, and sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't right. Just ask Google glass. (laughs) The fertile ground of the South was born from the church calendar, which operated as both kind of a linear a linear time model, but also cyclical, right? The church calendar is cycles, right? It's I'm not talking about the Catholic Church here, but I'm still just talking about mm-hmm. the church cycle of going to church every Sunday and baptisms and weddings and funerals and right. So there's a sort of cycle to this. And it merged the abstract notion of time with social time, uh the social time of everyday affairs and seasonal tasks. So the Protestant church's calendars uh reinforce ideas of time thrift. Any moment not working for his glory was wasted time. <clears throat> once this merged with ideas that God revealed, um, sorry, once this merged with ideas that God revealed those who were among the elect by their material successes in life, well, then time belonged to both God and mammon. So, like, one of the, the Calvinist ideas is like, we none of us know who's saved or damned. But one of the ways we can tell if we think we're saved is by how successful we are because like god rewards us for our hard work
0: what we do in life echoes in eternity
1: once you get that idea in then it's like you you start to get the idea that like well i'm rich therefore god loves me my system must be right you know what i mean um and we still see a lot of this today sort of in a slightly different form the shift in mentality gives birth to the mercantile capitalism um that the south really follows these were all ideas that prior to the reformation uh, would have been seen as like grossly immoral, if not utterly heretical. Um, but the Reformation sort of shifts this, the the, the way that the, the world views things. Um, so the ground was made fertile, starting when Martin Luther mailed, nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg in 1517, and the surrounding German princes saw an opportunity for a cheaper, weaker church. Um, and so the ground was fertile, but how would the tech be implemented, right? Like these things that had come before had laid the fertile ground for implementation, right? One way, as mentioned earlier, was the church bell. Throughout the South, church bells were co-opted by civic authorities to mark secular time in addition to church calendar events. So sound and time become inextricably linked in communicating public time. The sound of time drilled deep into the consciousness, as Emily Conte noted after Columbia, South Carolina, was leveled by the war in 1865. Quote, the market is a ruined shell. Supported by crumbling arches, its spire fallen in, and with with it the old town clock, whose familiar stroke we miss so much. End quote. For Emma and countless others, it was the sound of time that stuck with them. The clock was some the clock was somewhat unique too, according to David Landis. Few inventions in history have ever made their their way into society with such ease. Even the poets liked the new clocks, and no group is by instinct and sensibility so suspicious of technological or technical innovation as poets, end quote. Although, it should be noted, some poets recognize the tyrannical threat of the clock to subordinate civic and political life. So, I want to go back to Edgar Allan Poe for a minute. I mentioned before, clocks loom large in some in a number of his writings. They often play critical roles in his stories, probably most famously in The Mask of the Red Dead. Poe frequently pitted the purely mechanistic view of humanity as embodied by the clock in opposition to the creative spirit of man that was threatened by that very clock in his story for which this episode gets its name, the devil in the belfry, for example, Poe tells a tale. And by the way, I I love this story. Uh, He tells the tale of quote, the finest place in the world, the small town of wonder what time it is, (laughs)
0: i like that
1: (laughs) yeah Uh, end quote okay i want to read his description of the town so i want you to just listen to what he describes here and just it's 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 just great okay there can be no doubt that it has always existed as we find it at this epoch. the oldest man in the borough can remember not the slightest difference in the appearance of any portion of it and indeed the very suggestion of such a possibility is considered an insult The site of the village is a perfectly circular valley, and it's entirely surrounded by gentle hills over whose summit the people have never yet ventured to pass. They do not believe there is anything at all on the other side. Round the skirts of the valley, which is quite level and paved through with flat tiles, extends a continuous row of 60 little houses. These, having their backs on the hills, must look, of course, to the center which is just 60 yards from the front door of each dwelling. Every house has a small garden before it with a circular path, a sundial and 24 cabbages. End quote. At the center of town is a clock tower, which all the residents watch with pocket watches in hand to make sure their own watches are in sync in Poe's story. One day a figure appears over the hills unexpectedly. And once he arrives in town, it is clear it's the devil. The devil climbs the tower at noon while all the villagers watch with confusion. And when the clock strikes 12, the townspeople relax. Everything is fine until the devil makes it chime a 13th time, shattering their world, sending it into chaos. You have all the, the boys run around saying, but it's thir- it's 13 o'clock. It's 13 o'clock. I've been so hungry this last hour. <coughs> the story title, I think has a dual meaning. The devil in the belfry is the little literal devil who came to open the eyes of the of the people of I wonder what time it is to creative possibilities. Right, he comes to open their eyes to to human creativity by inventing a thirteen o'clock. Oh. But also, I think the devil in the belfry is actually the clock itself. I think the title of the story, "The Devil in the Belfry." is talking about the actual clock that's there, not the devil. I think it's a double entendre. So I think Poe's taking a a not so subtle jab here at the tyranny of the clock, right? Everyone in the town goes somewhat mad because of 13 o'clock. They all believe that the things that like, that there's been a whole hour that they should have been doing things, but weren't doing it. Like it blows their minds because they're so, they're so dependent on clock time that it breaks their brains again i mean he's using you know it's satire i mean he's, he's using satire but like uh poe ends the story like this quote i left the place in disgust and now i appeal for aid to all lovers of correct time and fine kraut let us proceed in a body to the borough and restore the ancient order of things in wonder what time it is by ejecting that little fellow from the steeple end quote so there's a couple of things I just want to point out very very quickly. The town is a perfect circle. There are 60, 60 houses
0: built mm-hmm.
1: around the circle.
0: There are like 60
1: there are 60 minutes, right, in an hour. <laughs> Each one of those houses is 60 yards from the center of the town. Mm-hmm. There are 60 seconds in every minute. Every house has 24 cabbages in front. And cabbage is of course 24 hours in a day, but also cabbage is uh, is itself a metaphor everybody wants to make that sweet cabbage
0: damn right baby
1: so i think it's the whole story is a a criticism of this idea of like time is money right i mean like he's literally turning cabbage into and like what he says there's people who he's like i want to appeal to all lovers of fine so he's sort of doing a little a little play on lovers of money and lovers of the correct time to (laughs) go and eject the little fella from the steeple. But I think he's, you know, I think the whole thing is a bit of a, the devil in the belfry is the clock itself. So anyway, I think that Poe guy kind of had some good ideas I mean, he figured some things out.
0: He's a Uh, clever guy. Yeah. Very, very clever. Very very clever. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) I just think that's a really, it's a, yeah. Anyway, Uh, during the colonial era, some urban stores had clocks and some businesses had some use for clocks as well in 1751. So going way back, for example, Charleston tavern keepers, you'll love this, Mike. This is, I put this in here just for you in 1751. For example, Charleston tavern keepers were not allowed to quote, entertain or employ any seaman or mariner exceeding one hour in four and 20 end quote. So you could not have a, 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 a sailor in your bar for more than one hour out of any 24. That's Interesting. like the, t- the bars, the bars in Charleston refused to allow. Yeah. Uh, there are, there are a number of reasons for that, but I, we're not, this is not the time. Um, <laughs> one, one is because they were afraid of slave rebellions and the uh, seamen uh, would bring news and, uh, and information to uh, the kind of underground slave kind of communication networks. But sure. Anyway, but that's a, that's a, that's a, another, that's a topic for another, another episode. In 1741, a Charleston statute outlawed, quote, play at any billiard table after the sun hath been set one hour, end quote. So, you know, um, so, you know, bars had a reason to have a clock because you had to follow these statutes. Yes. there were even a, There were even appeals to time in regulating slave labor, as noted in the 1850s, quote, the law protects the slave from the Sabbath and limits his labor to from 14 to 15 hours a day. And but good. these were broad guidelines, and or or there are specific circumstances, right? Yeah, right. You're only allowed to work 15 <laughs> hours a day. It's very generous. <laughs> um, eh. Planters also deployed precise time in order to give like temporal meaning to life events that were beyond their control. So George Mason, the founding father, meticulously recorded the birth hour of his children in his family Bible. Others, like John Berkeley Grimble, in December of 1848, recorded. Uh, A less auspicious occasion, quote, Hmm. my beloved wife, this evening at 15 minutes past nine o'clock, delivered of her her ninth child, a boy, stillborn, end
0: quote. that ain't good.
1: But again, you know, it's like there's no reason to know the specific time for those things. Yeah. (laughs) We we imbue those things with meaning. Uh, South Carolina planner David Gavin, who we mentioned earlier, writing in 1859, recorded, quote, my Negro woman, Celia, was taken into labor last night about 10 o'clock, was delivered today about 3 o'clock, about 17 hours, end quote. Um, so, you know, recording the amount of time she was in labor. Yeah. Uh, but partly because he was recording that as uh, how many lost hours of labor he had. Because
0: who cool uh, got It's true. Not a, only. She'll be Dr. Pay.
1: Yeah. Not that, That's easily done uh, for people with no pay. Not only was time sort of imbued with meaning, but the timepieces themselves often became fetishized. Um, take this note from a South Carolinian in 1881, quote, my watch is 30 years old. It has been several times suggested to me that I might exchange it for a thin modern gold watch. When I do, you may set me down for a barbarian. That watch marked the time when my children were born, and the record is set down in the family Bible. It has ticked in their ears when they could only speak by laughing at it. It marked the time when the doctor's medicines were to be given. It has made many records that are fast sealed up to be opened only when another time comes. End quote. In other words, the clock had immortalized otherwise forgotten moments. Yes. With this idea of time consciousness, a fear of losing time grew. So take, for example, Princeton student William Cabell Carrington, who's uh, writing to his father in Virginia in 1841. Quote. The loss of time is indeed worthy of consideration, and at my time in life, time is to be regarded as more valuable than money, end quote. William Burtle Smith, another student, <coughs> received the following advice from his mother in 1824, quote, long, very long may you be a partaker in the inestimable blessing of health, which will enable you to pursue your studies and prevent your losing any time, end quote. Two years earlier, his father actually wrote him to say, "Quote: I really regret to hear of this vacation you speak of. You have already lost so much time this year, and I am loath that you should lose another day." End quote. How dare you take a vacation? Uh, of course, um, <laughs> yeah, of course. The price of well-coordinated public time schedules and the use of clock to uh, preserve public order was the sacrifice of personal freedom from time. So, right, adopting this means people gave up their personal freedom. For people who were accustomed to mastery, this, of course, is no small sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Nor was the pressure of time thrift the exclusive domain of men. In 1849, Georgia's Dolly Sumner Burge uh, wrote of yet, quote, another badly spent day, end quote. In 1850, Martha Crawford of Alabama lamented, quote, how idly and vainly I spend my time, end quote. <laughs> but regardless of their own sinful use of time, Southern mothers Really tried to make sure they could save their children. So one Charleston mother advised, "quote, and this is in all caps, early rising for my own children." And then in regular, how unbecoming it is to waste the hours of mourning in stupefying drowsiness when so large a portion of our fellow men are already engaged in their daily avocations." End quote. In 1827, Alicia Middleton of Stono, South Carolina, told her son, "quote." Apply yourself to your child with all your might. Give not your time to any light or trifling amusements or occupations. Rise very early. We are not placed in this world to be idle, End quote. These attitudes presented a key challenge for, for women as housework was and is task-oriented rather than clock-oriented. Like, I mean, seriously, imagine kind of setting out like, okay, I'm going to do one hour of laundry, 20 minutes of sweeping, or like 30 minutes of meal-making. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't work that way. Right. Um, house, housework is, you know, like, I'm going to make dinner until until dinner is made. You know what I mean? I'm going to do laundry yeah. until, until I've done however many loads of laundry or whatever. <laughs> so for Southern women in particular, the notion that time belonged to God held more firmly than it did among men who, you know, could consider other possibilities because, like, they weren't as task-oriented. For one example, when answering your child's question, what is an hour?, One mother explained in 1882, quote, It is a white-winged messenger from our father in heaven sent by him to inquire of you, of me. What are we doing? What are we saying? End quote. So again, you sort of see this idea of it being God's time, right? Consciousness notwithstanding, uh, the coexistence of clock, God, and nature in determining time made it hard for foreign visitors to fully grasp what kind of time system was in use in the South before the 1830s. When the German Johann David Schepf visited North Carolina in the 1780s, I love this story, his encounters with ferrymen left him frustrated. Quote, when the expected boat for ferrying over the horses arrived, the next morning was fixed for the passage and everything was arranged. But although we had a right to hope for prompt service for once, we found ourselves deceived yet again when we came to the waterside at eight o'clock. The gentleman who kept the ferry was still sleeping quietly in bed. Travelers, therefore, must have a good supply of interest if they are not to be outdone, end quote. This guy, I love it. He's just like, <laughs> like I'm here. Where is the guy? Um, but again, like no time consciousness in 1780, right? British, merchant, uh, British merchants reaffirmed this uh, time attitude as late as 1820, uh, I'm sorry, a British merchant, when he traveled from Monticello to Richmond. Quote, occasionally we heard a clock, which at first startled me. As I had seen very few since we set out from Washington, everything being regulated by the sun. If you ask what time it is, it either wants so many hours of noon or it is so much before or so much after sundown. This want of precision would run away with all the spare hours in our country. Quote. So something makes this change. The question is what? Well, obviously, like other processes, this one had many sources. The punctuality often sought but rarely achieved by the colonial postal service, mercantile association of time and money, and an increasing concern with travel times and urban schedules all helped pave the way for this sort of broader time consciousness. But from the 1830s, steamboats, railroads, and telegraphs really shifted the Southern gospel of speed to a gospel of punctuality. Now, understand the concept of uh, day labor had long been understood by Southerners. Their record books are full of uh, payment notations for a half day or a quarter day of labor or three quarters day, you know, full day's wages paid or whatever. But in these cases, laborers, even rented slave laborers, uh, maintained a degree of control over when they arrived and their pace of work. So one example will serve to illustrate this. In 1790, a Virginia planter named William Cable paid David Dawson for six days' work to paint his house, right? So again, six days to paint his house. Four years later, the house needed painting again. So Cable hired Dawson again, but somehow in 1794, the job just took one and a half days of labor. So we have no idea why the discrepancy, other than to assume that Dawson had some control over his own pace. And uh, I guess in 1794 he had other shit to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. So he, he got and he got paid the same rate in both years. Yes. So it's just like he obviously didn't need the money as much in 1794. Uh and 1790 is like <coughs> Wonder how long I can drag this job out for this sucker.
0: Yeah, Um, um, it still happens today.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, why wouldn't it? All right. We can even find examples in the laws that reveal these kind of shifting attitudes. Before 1830, there was a great deal of confusion about natural versus calendar time in South Carolina legal proceedings, especially proceedings about foreclosures and evictions. Debtors frequently argued that a month's notice to vacate meant a lunar month from date of receipt, right? So a full cycle of the moon. Mm-hmm. While sheriffs and landlords preferred interpreting the notice as applying to the end of the calendar month. I can only assume because it was more cruel that way, but who knows? <laughs> um, <clears throat> the, courts, the courts were ambiguous, citing differently in different locales. Um, and different, you know, for different cases. Uh-huh. But after 1830, the law rejected natural time as the proper basis for legal, like computation of time and instead applied calendar time exclusively. So, you know, now you got till the end of the month to get out um, where before there was a mixed bag, you might get the whole lunar month. But even these deliberate bureaucratic efforts uh to rationalize and standardize time were not sufficient to push the adoption of clock time throughout the whole region. Right, Something else had to be at play. The Postal Service uh, had, from the beginning, under Postmaster Benjamin Franklin, attempted a standardized punctual postal service. In October of 1804, for example, uh, B. sent New Orleans Postmaster promised, quote, the mail for the future will arrive every Monday at 5 o'clock p.m. and will start every Thursday at 7 o'clock a.m., end quote. Southerners were very aware of the post office, just lest you think they were rare. Uh, By 1851, of the 19,622 post offices in the United States, 7,083 were in the South, about 36%, the same percentage as the North, uh, despite having a much smaller population. By 1835, postmasters were still making contracts with stagecoach operators with precise delivery times specified in the contracts, or they would incur financial penalties. Uh, If they didn't, you know, if they didn't deliver on time, but this was an exceedingly difficult task for stage owners like William Smith of Virginia, who complained about absorbing the penalties, quote, for each 10 minutes delay in the delivery of the mail after the time fixed for its delivery at the post office specified on the schedule, um, end quote. So he's like complaining because like that he's paying a, a fine for every 10 minutes the mail's late. For owners like Smith, bad weather, broken spokes, lame horses, poor roads, all of these things cause great financial distress. The U.S. Mail was a far cry from English Mail, uh, as this 1833 account from Rosebud Magazine pointed out, quote, so punctual are many of the coaches in England in arriving at different points along the road that the country people frequently set their clocks and watches at the moment of time that they see those vehicles, instead of employing the sun as formerly. End quote. So with nothing like that in the U.S. Ultimately, it was the railroad that brought punctuality to the post office, and ultimately... Uh, Shipping southern commodities as well. Unlike steamboats or stagecoaches, railroads were not affected by drought, by rain, by frost, right? Like they're pretty weather independent. Uh, Steamboats don't do so good when the river freezes over. (laughs) A train that could travel at 20 miles an hour could travel from the mouth of the Ohio River to Mobile, Alabama, and then across to New Orleans in about 36 hours. Uh The next fastest route was by steamboat, which took 72 hours downriver and 96 hours upriver. New Orleans to New York could be traveled in about seven to eight days instead of 30 to 45 by stagecoach. So, I mean, again, like, it's amazing, the the revolution that the railroads bring. Uh But railroads were not wholly independent of natural time either. Most stations offered different hours of operation in summer and winter because of solar time, right? Shorter days and all that. Uh Every town, every locality Operated on its own natural time according to when the sun rose and set in that specific place, making train timetables a bit confusing and unreliable, especially for travelers who did not like reset their watches every time they got to a new location, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you traveled from Jacksonville, Florida to Tallahassee, Florida, the sun rises at wildly different times. You know, I mean it's just like a, it's a long state. It's you know, it's like a 35-minute delay. And if you're trying to catch a train, uh, you're screwed. 35 minutes yep. is uh, is the difference between on and uh, and not even seeing the dust. But they were, railroads were successful in doing what I did above, reducing space time in the minds of Southerners. As in this account, quote, the Camden Company ran a train from New York to Philadelphia in less than five hours. This calculation may may appear incredible to the public. Ten years ago, who would have supposed that in 1834, the distance between New York and Philadelphia would have been diminished to five hours, end quote. So you see what he's doing there, right? Like the distance is measured in hours as opposed Mm -hmm. to distance, right? Mm -hmm. Mm By 1845, railroads improved their efficiency enough to convince the postal service that they could deliver on time and they signed contracts that imposed really heavy fines if they failed to do so. But the fines were rarely necessary. We can see the impact of postal, postal punctuality most clearly in letters written by Southerners. Planters frequently dated and timed their personal correspondence, which is crazy. Like, if you think about like you write somebody a letter and you're like June 23rd, 1847, 4 <laughs> 15 PM. You know, like that's weird, but yeah. they did southerners like Georgia physician, Daniel Turner revealed his own time consciousness when he informed his Rhode Island parents, quote, my business obliges me to hurry as I shall not be able to return before the mail closes. End quote. So you like, finishes his letter real quick saying like sorry like i've got to end it here because you know again time conscious because the because he knows the post office closes at whatever time it closes
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's a radical transformation it used to be like at sundown which gives you a kind of window you know um right. or when Anne, yeah yeah or when ann simmons of charleston told her uh wrote a letter to quote dear mary i don't know who she is other than that to her, quote dear mary I have only time to say that I have with pleasure procured the items you requested and regret that I could not obtain them in time for the last post, end quote. She's basically saying that like as she's just barely making this post. Indeed, uh, even lover's letters reflect this race against time. A southerner, M.A.J. Washburn, writing from Saratoga Springs in 1858, quote, My darling Fanny, I must say adieu. I could write an hour longer, but must not delay for fear that I might not mail my letter in time end quote, or James Burchell Richardson's 1829 letter to his wife, indicating that he would write as much as possible, saying, quote, as the mail does not close before tomorrow two o'clock, I will retain this letter to the latest period of mail's departure, end quote. Similarly, William Jervie of South Carolina felt hurried by time when he wrote to planter merchant Josiah Smith of Charleston in 1862, I have only time before the mail closes to acknowledge receipt of your favor on the 28th, end quote. That was it. Uh, on, a, on another Southerner's brief introduction in a quick letter to his brother, it began, quote, my dear brother, I have only a few moments before the mail closes to say whatever he said, end quote. So again, you know, you see like this time consciousness popping up in these like mundane things, these letters that people are just writing, like they're very aware and sharing it. Again, think about yourself. Like that's not something we would really write about. So it's it's foremost in mind for these people. That's the point. Uh-huh. If, if steamboat schedules and postal times made southerners punctual railroads made them absolutely frenetic railroad conductors uh, seem to have been somewhat ruthless in their pursuit of punctuality uh, and i've got two stories here just to suffice some visitors to rosanna law's greenwood south carolina estate in 1853 made the mistake of arriving late for their train oh, they came to engine 96 to come in the car but the conductor would not wait for them, although the carriage was in sight, which was certainly very unaccommodated. In 1839, railroad president John Bruce wrote, quote, this evening, the passengers were left behind to their great mortification. It is generally believed they might have got over in time with their baggage, but for their own inattention, end quote. People then, like now, blame the railroads when they missed a train, of course. But uh, one last thing to note about all this, <laughs> about all this so-called progress. There's always a price to pay for progress, and sometimes that price is mortal. The advances of the railroad uh, compress time, but also reduce the value of human life in the pursuit of saving time. As one writer explained in 1853, quote, "But why we ask, should these frightful railroad accidents so often occur?" We answer because men are in these times, and in this country at least, more needful of money than of human life. To save a minute or a dollar, they are, ready, are often ready to jeopardize the lives of a whole train of passengers, end quote. Beginning in the 1830s, then, space was, com- was conquered by time. The age-old idea of cyclical time moving linearly was secularized and consolidated. Nature was being conquered by humanity. Alfred Huger, Charleston postmaster, put it like this in 1858, quote, It is manifest that we must go steadily forward or lose going backwards, end quote increasingly we find space expressed in the language of time as planner john burley grimble did in 1833 quote i this morning returned from new york in the steamboat david brown in the extraordinary space of 86 hours from wharf to wharf end quote so again like i went from new york to uh for, you know from new york to charleston in 86 hours not like never talking about the distance like the way that he's describing <laughs> it is it's crazy sure um Or 20 years later, he described the distance between Charleston and St. John's Island as quote from two and a half to three hours by water from the city. He was asked, how far is it? He's like, Oh, it's two and a half hours. Which is not the question, right? Like these two things become merged. That's a, you know, like we do that today all the time. How, how far is it to Washington? About 30 minutes. But like, that is not the question or the answer. It doesn't make sense. Um, the 1839 agricultural convention, um, That, that's like an in caps agricultural convention summed up this process nicely. Quote, already are time and distance half annihilated between this country and Europe by the introduction of steamships. End quote. That same year, the internal improvements convention of North Carolina expanded on this compression saying, quote, the great advantages of the railways is the saving of time, the annihilation of space. Time is money and the attainment of greater speed and certainty amounts in effect to a reduction of expense. End quote. Perhaps wistfully, David Gavin mused in 1856 quote, When I was a boy, 25 years ago, it was a great thing to have made a trip to Mississippi. It took 20 days then. Now men and women esteem it a small matter. They take the R road and stage and perform the trip in two or three days. End quote. But not everyone was so impressed with the amount of control that railroads and other agents of time consciousness were imposing on society. In 1859, Southern Planter magazine printed a complaint by an older individual, quote, What kind of accommodation be they? You can't go when you want to go. You go when the bell rings or the noisy whistle blows, end quote. Indeed, the elder citizens knew what they had lost because they remembered when they had been free, when they weren't controlled by the whims of the corporations. Even the Virginia pro-slavery ideologue George Fitzhugh condemned, quote, uniform postage, railroads and telegraphs. For harming the South, uh, end quote. The forces that compressed time and space also allowed Yankee fashions to corrupt and weaken the South. It allowed Northern body sentiments to pollute pristine Southern thought, uh, end quote. Little did he recognize that Yankee notions of time thrift and clock time had already spread to the bastion of Southern independence ideology, the plantation. We now turn our attention to that, which uh, was always close at mind for Southern planters. The great Southern dilemma of how a slaveholding society could uh, embrace a qualified notion of progress in a world increasingly defined by the principles of free wage labor and democratic capitalism. This was the Southern planter desire to embrace the scientific management of modernity while abolition became increasingly tied to the definition of modern. The primary method planters settled on was through the use of clock to regulate work. If they could instill a respect for clock time among the enslaved, the discipline of the lash, they believed, would become of secondary importance. Even Karl Marx suggested that Southern slave society was attempting to graft clo- uh, carefully chosen capitalist techniques onto an unfree labor force, which, if successful, planters believed, would prove beneficial to a society obsessively focused on the dual components of modern capitalist economy. One. One increasing productivity and efficiency, thereby reducing labor costs, and two, stabilizing an inherently volatile workforce. Planters who, degree, who achieved a degree of success <clears throat> in applying scientific management to their plantations were celebrated publicly. The responsibility for a rapid but controlled entry into modernity rested with all white Southerners, uh, not just the planter class, though primarily it was on planters and overseers. An overseer, planners were told, quote, should be a man, to use the language of Solomon, that can discern both time and judgment, not only how to do, but when, end quote. When older planners seemed reluctant to embrace the new ways, as shown in that earlier publication, publications began printing, quote, exhortations to the young farmer, end quote, and similar advice columns, which gave the following kind of advice, quote, Time thus lost can never be made up, and how to produce the greatest amount of combined labor in a given time. Young fathers were advised to quote, select your finest boy and make a farmer of him, induct him into the practical details of the business, teach him that in no profession is time more precious, learn him to rise with the lark, and remind him that every moment he loses, is multiplied by the number of his dependents. End quote. In other examples, specific planters were celebrated, like the Reverend J. L. Moultrie of Macon County, uh, Macon County, Alabama, who was showcased not only because he enforced quote a strict discipline among his Negroes end quote, but mm-hmm. because his progressive farming techniques were quote carried out with the most perfect clock-like precision, to the great benefit of
0: master and servant. End quote. Oh. He was another, huh? He was probably the top producer. Yeah, the Reverend,
1: the slave owning Reverend. The another reverend. Celebra- yeah. Another celebra- another celebrated South Carolina planter who made his bonds people turn out a bale of cotton, quote, in the unprecedented time of six and a half minutes, exclamation point. End quote. Nice. Uh, even labor saving machines were advertised in relation to time thrift. Quote: yep. Samuel Sin's rotary digging machine. Uh, end quote. could fork five and a half acres with six horses in six and three-quarter hours. Hussey's mowing machine cut fodder for curing with, quote, almost the precision of clockwork.
0: Hmm.
1: Planters could find inducements to clock time and time thrift almost everywhere. When not celebrating innovation, the Southern press pushed the Protestant idea of that poverty was a symptom of some moral defect. Laziness. The Southern plant... That's that's exactly the the, uh, the stereotype. Mm-hmm. The Southern Planner published the following uh, article in 1851. Quote, are you poor? You will probably re- forever remain so if you habitually waste the precious hours of the morning in bed. Who will seek the labor or services of him who sleeps and dozes in the morning until seven or even eight o'clock? If I such a person is poor, he must remain poor. He right. that would thrive, he that would thrive must rise at five. He who by <laughs> rising at eight instead of five o'clock thereby loses three hours labor daily, 10 years labor lost in the course of 40 years,
0: end quote. You know, I actually just read that in Kobe Bryant's book. That sentiment, I've been reading that a lot, and I actually started getting up at four o'clock in the morning myself for a while, Kobe Bryant, and his book says he'd get up at 4 in the morning, he'd go to the gym, he'd do a practice, get home, breakfast, practice at lunch, and then practice again at dinner. And he said he was practicing three times compared to two times with most people. And he was doing the calculation. He goes, that means this amount of time I put in per year more than my competitors. And it's amazing how that, how you're reading that, and it's still being written and kind of preached today.
1: Whoa. Cool. I mean, this is just insane rise and grind culture for racists. I mean, that's all. That's all I, I'm reading. I,
0: I, rise and grind I, for I racists. With, well, it's rise and grind for everybody, not just racists. I mean, well, what I was, yeah, but no, but I AM. mean, but
1: yeah, but this is these these are written for Southern planter, like slave owners. So this is they're basically just doing rise and grind culture, but for you know for racists. So yeah, do they're racist. Don't, <laughs> I don't know okay, what they're. I, their, I'm sorry. You know. I, I'm sorry. The the people who literally believe that that enslaved that their their enslaved population are children who need to be taken care of, who are literally unequal to white people. I mean, that is literally the foundation of the system. They are racist. Like they are. Judge like, I'm people, sorry.
0: People, listen. Judge, I, judge people for the time they lived, not the time. Sure.
1: Let's lived. read the abolitionists. Let's let's <laughs> let's leave let's Stumler, read Frederick Douglass.
0: Just because you owned a slave doesn't necessarily mean. I mean you're a racist back then just meant that that's the time that was if you had money you probably would have owned slaves
1: no then. no it 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 actually does mean you're racist um it does if you think you can own a person at, at this time uh it means you're racist because you okay whatever i'm not getting into this but yes it does at this time it does uh there that's that's unquestionable uh don't don't defend don't defend slave owning <laughs> Um, that that you that you cannot do that. Don't defend that.
0: I'm not I, defending I, it. I'm I'm just saying. Yeah, but
1: yeah, but it's it's people, racist. It's it's it's, it's not. Ra- how do you how would you say it's not racist? Racism is literally the belief that
0: because it has one, nothing to do with their skin color. It's just labor. They needed a labor force. No, could have been no. It has could have been orange. No, it, it could have been it, it no. It no, could have been anything. It didn't matter. Right. To all them, of their which color. No,
1: no. It is they they refer to them as a race of people that are. That are not equal to white people. They talk all the time in their writings about how the white the, about the supremacy of the white race. That that people of that these colored people, people, these you know enslaved people are are literally by their race less human than they are.
0: Well, they sure. are, this there is was the a lot definite... of people that wrote that. Yeah, I, yeah I but I that's what that. race you can't yes. paint everyone with the broad brush brush.
1: It's not. I mean, I I hope this is tongue in cheek, but like this is literally what racism is. Is it is a, a a a system in which people are discriminated against because of uh, because of their their different race, a thing that
0: we sure. made up. Sure. I
1: mean, ha- and I mean, I I don't know how you could argue that this isn't racism. That's insane.
0: I just um, don't. I I, I were were they being called racist back then? I don't think, I mean, was racism, a thing.
1: I mean, okay. So, so it we didn't have a today, definition. Hold on. Hold on. hold on. Like
0: we, we could call them that today, but we, back then were they?
1: Yeah. I, but I didn't say back then I'm saying what they're describing oh, is so rising grind culture, but for racists, but that's, sure. I, I'm talking about racists. I mean, yeah. we didn't have a word for war crimes during world war II. Do you consider the Holocaust a war crime?
0: No, it's genocide.
1: Okay. We didn't have a word for genocide during World War II. Do you can I don't see? Know, but I, you can I see.
0: thought we did, but
1: no, we hadn't. No, it got defined at the Nuremberg Trials, well after. So okay. we didn't have, a, but like just because there wasn't a word for it doesn't mean genocide didn't exist. We just didn't have the word yet.
0: Sure, we didn't have the word, but people were still judged. I think the same back then as they are today. Meaning the rest of the world was up in arms about what was going on, and which is why obviously the, the a lot of the war happened. Um, but I think that's a little different than this case here. In you, that are you not
1: familiar with the Civil War? Sure. I mean, there was the, it was a whole thing that happened because yes, of, okay, yes. sorry. Um, I mean, it's correct. It's don't yeah. Let's not correct. let's not let's not go down this path anymore. I've already got to cut all of this out because <laughs> uh, be, because I I, I can't uh, believe you won't that lose sponsors. It's, Because because you're because you're so uh, you're so conditioned to like hear the word racism and be like no, that it's (laughs) like even even when I'm talking about a literal slave owner, you're like well that doesn't count. Um, Okay, Uh, people, people, literal whites, literal look, the the South was is a is conservative politically conservative, white supremacist organization like uh, organized society. That is what they are. Um, by definition, they are a, a racist, conservative political uh, political system. Okay, that's that is that those are just defini- That is just definitionally true. Um, conservative politics and white supremacy as the organizing principle. So that is like definitionally racist. So okay.
0: Anyway, well, the structure that they used works, especially the the early rise and grind.
1: Well, it doesn't because matter if it works. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> the, the, the Nazi system worked.
0: I don't know. Um, I don't think it works. They got I mean, they got kind of stomped out. And,
1: I mean, we we brought we brought a whole bunch of them over here and gave them jobs, and we uh, we, we put uh, the talent, we absolutely put them put him in charge of Interpol and put them in charge of West German uh, the West German police, and you <laughs> know um, Klaus Barbie, you know we uh, we funded him, and you know I, yeah, yeah I don't want to get into it. Okay, yeah. Uh, so this other magazine, DeBow's Review, warned its readers in 1854, quote, life is too short to lose a moment. Every hour has its business, end quote. The famed landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted, the guy who designed Central Park and like mm-hmm. uh, designed like the Biltmore Estate and other things like that, excuse me, he encountered this idea firsthand during a conversation with an Alabama planner on a riverboat in the 1850s. Uh, And I'm going to have to edit out what this Alabama planner said, but that's okay. Olmstead explained that the planner's, quote, impatience to return to his plantation was very great and was constantly aggravated by the frequent and long-continued stoppages of the boat, end quote. The planner skulked about, muttering, quote, time's money, time's money, and time's worth more to me than money now, a 100% more, end quote. Olmstead eventually inquired why the planner uh, why the planter was so upset and the planter told him quote because i left my bonds people all alone not a damn white man within four mile of them i said i said them to clearing but they ain't doing a damn thing that's the reason time's an object i told the captain when i came aboard says i captain says i time is the objective case with me end quote and, and indeed planters strove for a strict observance of a well-timed system of economy. Um, The guy's charming. Many Mm -hmm. Southerners, especially it seems uh, the yeomen and poor farmers, actually took this advice to heart. So, in fact, a lot of the poorer people in the South took this uh, this time thrift idea really seriously. Among these folks, their very survival might depend on a strict adherence to time management with very little wiggle room because they didn't have much money. Olmsted observed, Mm. even in the, quote, commonest sort of cabins among poor whites in the plantation districts, one could find a Connecticut clock, end quote. One yeoman (laughs) uh, will kind of illustrate our point here. James, F. of South Carolina, kept a precise accounting of the working time that was lost to the weather or to other reasons, uh, and his journal is occasionally laced with, like, guilty feelings of lost time, like when he wrote, quote, went to Hammett's mill with corn, Rather idling time away, end quote. So like, dude took his corn to be ground up into cornmeal, and he's like complaining like, man, I'm wasting all this time sitting here waiting on this cornmeal. Anyway, or when he uh he lost time by working through the inevitable injuries he s- sustained because he had to work his own land. In July 1855, he wrote, quote, cut my thumb severely with the axe, split it open, then lost three days work with my thumb, end quote. now plantation mistresses also learned from these articles uh cecilia of virginia told readers of southern planter in 1843 quote never let a servant say to you i forgot it that sentence is no excuse at all instead let regularity mark every action and the consequence will be that everything will be in its right place and at its right time end quote Given the plantation mistresses' added right. duty uh, added duty under the cult of domesticity uh, to be the moral and spiritual anchor of the household, one can kind of assume that the women believed God was applauding their efforts to manage their enslaved laborers in the house. It's to remember that time, thrift, and clock obedience might have been signals of virtue, but they nevertheless threatened to enslave masters to the clock. Planters also had to remember that scientific agriculture uh, or the scientific management of agriculture, meant finding a balance to, quote, investigate the laws of nature, not to subvert them, end quote. HBW, a slaveholder of Walker County, Georgia, <clears throat> wrote, quote, "Of in these days of energy and enterprise who remains ignorant and makes no effort to avail himself of information is decidedly an old fogey, not a conservative one either, but a destructive one either true to himself, his children or his country. End quote. Pretty heavy. Like just not making, not like anybody who's not trying to improve the way that he's managing his plantation is an old fogey, which is great. And then yep. he's like, not a conservative old fogey, like the good ones, a destructive one.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right.
1: And he's, he's and not true, not true to his country.
0: <laughs> it's pretty it, hardcore. This, I tell you that, that mindset, it I, Still see it a lot today. You know, you should definitely take like your that.
1: mindset from from the South it, it, before it, the Civil War. It worked out good for them.
0: The mindset that of these guys that you're reading of, the up at four, the the constantly focused on not wasting a second of time and getting the most out of labor, everything like that, is is you know, they were top one percent at their industry at that time. And this same mindset makes people the top one percent today in whatever industry they're in. It's, it's it's amazing,
1: yeah. But it's in, it's inhuman. It's 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 a it's a
0: it rejection of, of human existence. It takes a special mindset or mentality.
1: Yeah, a psychopath. It takes a psychopath. Like it's
0: a, you, a, you, you, you it's, a it's inhuman. Yeah, it's inhuman. Um,
1: I mean, it's a, it's a rejection of humanity.
0: It's 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 uh workaholic as well. Yeah, they the they, same they, type they of, say that.
1: But it's that, I mean, that's, that's the word, but that's, I think just softer. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely psychopathic. Um, I mean, it's just like, what is the point? Like, what is the point? Um, You drop dead dead tomorrow and like, and for what?
0: Now that's true. Um, That's it.
1: I mean, you, you've, you have, uh, you have, have buried the lead, you know? Anyway. All right. Uh, conservatives that they were planters were unwilling to revolutionize their mode of production unwilling to submit their whole enterprise to the dominion of the clock. As one slaveholder remarked, Southern society will continue to improve and progress, but offers no temptation to revolution or uh, organic reconstruction, end quote. Clock time would have to be applied within the diurnal and seasonal cycles devised by nature. Thus, it could be used to reinforce and reconcile Southerners, quote, traditional concern with preserving their place, oh, sorry, Would could be used to reinforce and reconcile Southerners' traditional concern with preserving their place in the social order while still modernizing on their own terms. But what do these terms look like? Well, to wrap up today, I'm going to read two sets of instructions and then finish with a little bit of firsthand testimony. Okay. The first instruction is from South Carolina planter James Henry Hammond's 1844 Plantation Manual. Quote, morning horn is blown an hour before day in the morning the second horn is blown just at good day the plow hands leave their houses for the stables 15 minutes before at 11 and a half a.m the plow gang knock off and repair to the nearest feeding house end quote so again just getting a sense of how they're applying time to their managing the the plantation right mm-hmm. second uh, a Virginia planter left instructions titled quote Plantation management, police, end quote. (laughs) From the 1850s, and this is from the 1850s, it reads, quote, it is strictly required of the manager that he rise at the dawn of day every morning, that he blow a horn for the assembling of the hands, require all hands to repair to a certain and fixed place in 10 minutes after the blowing of the horn, and there himself see that all are present or notice absentees. There will be stated hours for the Negroes for breakfast and for dine, and those hours must be regularly observed. Breakfast will be at eight o'clock and dinner at one o'clock. A horn will be sounded every night at nine o'clock. After every Negro will be required to be at his quarters. Depend or end quote. So that's the the instructions. Pretty specific time to mm-hmm. eat. You eat. You get to eat at eight a.m. You get to eat at one p.m. Those are your meals.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: And, uh, and then you sign a sign on the horn at nine and you go back to your quarters. And then depending on the plantation, the quarters were subject to random roll calls two or three times a night, uh, on a kind of surprise basis to make sure nobody was out of the quarters at night to, yeah, it's prison. prison.
0: It sounds like a, it sounds like a prison camp. Yeah. It's prison. I mean, it's,
1: you know, it's prison. To confirm the uh, the veracity of these managerial guides, we turn now, finally, for the very first time in this episode, to hear from some of the enslaved themselves. Oh. So far, our entire story has centered on Southern white folks. Mm-hmm. But in part two, we're going to be shifting our attention to the people living under the dual tyranny of clock and whip. Oh, nice. But I couldn't do a whole episode So we're doing that in episode two, but I couldn't go through a whole episode without hearing from at least some marginalized people in the story. Okay. Uh, So first we have a former Mississippi slave, Laura Montgomery, provided her perspective on the clock regimented system, explaining, quote, in the plantation house, the clock sat on top of the mantle and master bill had to stand up in a chair to wind that clock. When she had to go in the field, Master would blow his horn that hour every morning and we had to get out right now and that'd start that work, End quote. Another former slave, Prince Johnson, echoed her comments, quote, Every morning at about four o'clock, we could hear that horn blow for us to get up and go to the field, End quote. Former slaves Anderson Williams and Sam Anderson reported, quote, At three o'clock in the morning, the bell was rung and at four o'clock, Every uh, N word must be ready to go to the field. End quote. And then the other thing he said: "Quote the overseer had a darky ring the bell or blow the horn at four o'clock to get up by the mornings."
0: End quote. It sounds actually more like the military than a prison. With that, with that last one, I'm envisioning uh, military up up yeah, early exactly. out the work. Yeah. You know. sure. They see, gave you know, more, They gave them all weapons banging a pan or something
1: sure they they gave them all weapons trained them how to use them
0: well yeah i mean not not weapons but they (laughs) they gave them you know working stuff and trained them told them how to use it i'm sure yeah i mean i mean it it was it's interesting i would love to have seen the living quarters and what that was like and i would love to have known the difference too because um You know, were there uh, nicer accommodations and then some, you know, depending on what, what, you know, who bought you and and what plantation you ended up, you could have, you know, a a freaking just a hole, like just an outhouse that you're living in. And then maybe some plantations, there was a little bit of nicer quarters. And then I guess depending on your appearance, you could have gotten different jobs at a plantation, maybe in the house or outside the house in the field, whether it's a servant or which are probably what the more attractive females were doing um
1: uh yeah i mean not not always uh, uh, attractive doesn't always have anything have everything to do with it as as uh your mind goes to a weird place but um yeah it's really more about what your skills are i mean if you're like there there's a a lot of records of like um, you'll have one, you'll have a, a female slave that's known as a really good cook. And so, uh-huh. you know, you'll have another planner really negotiate to sort of buy her from somewhere else or, or, yep. uh, or they'll, they'll, they'll be a really good cook. And she's got a, a kind of, uh, understudy as it were, cause you have several people working, cooking. And so you might have a, a planner from another plantation, try to buy the, the understudy as it were, you know, the, the person being trained by the, the really well-known yeah, um, you know but yeah different people have different skills and there's a there's a whole political economy uh discussion that we we could have at some point about like just comparing the difference between field slaves and and house slaves and like the positives and negatives of both of those experiences because like it's it's generally kind of known that like earth and believed uh by people even today were like that if you were uh enslaved in the household that things might be better for you mm-hmm. um and that's true in the sense that the the, the conditions might be better of your labor conditions might be better but you also faced uh some some grave threats uh from sexual assault to you know if you're sexually assaulted you also face the wrath of the plantation mistress if she figures it out sure. um you you know what I mean so there's there's bad situations there and also you know i mean like it's not, like the uh, it's almost all female house slaves although the favor- favored male slaves would would say tend to the stables or or yes. work as a, t- a teamster or uh whatever um whereas yeah <clears throat> fields if you're working in the fields that that was um uh you know worse in terms of the labor that you might have to do and and probably the punishment that you might face um you have fewer niceties that's for sure' because, you know if you're working in the house the 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 plantation owners often want you to look nice for company and things like that so yes. they, they they might provide you with with nicer um you know fineries or whatever but like but again like that's fraught with its own problems but the field slaves are by and large outside of working hours at least left alone um you know to a, to a greater degree um you know so there's not that there's you know but there, there there's some uh possibility for you know for carving out um for carving out certainly you know private moments private l- private life uh in in a uh, very small scale but like to some degree if you're you're working the fields you like i said generally are sort of left alone at least from sundown to sunup um so you know so again there's there's a kind of um it's all it's all horrific but uh you know yeah there's there's it's really hard to decide whether one's better or worse or whatever i mean i don't know how you uh, argue these in a matter of degrees, but certainly uh, they are different, and there are sort of what you might call advantages to both situations and disadvantages to both. But
0: I'm looking peril. at it through the eyes of the owner, slave owner. Um,
1: yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure
0: you are. And what I would have, I mean, I, as a businessman slash slave owner of the time, I would have the best accommodations. I would be known as the one who buys up all the hottest looking ones and has them in the house with those little maid outfits i'm just imagining my mind's going a little dirty right now sorry so here's a another whole section i gotta take out um <laughs> you don't know you don't leave that I mean, one in. that was good you're, you're literally good.
1: you're li- you're literally fantasizing about rape so that's kind of weird no, um who
0: said anything about rape why does your mind go there you you're implying guy. it you're no, you're I'm implying not. it i'm bringing implying I'm implying all like, these
1: attractive women with
0: these like sexy like little maid outfits yes and they i'm doing rape what are you crazy they, they like
1: it's it is inevitably going to be rape because the power dynamic insists
0: that it would be you no, can't have they con- could have you can't have a crush on me they can have a you crush can't
1: have me. you can't have a consensual relationship with somebody that is your property with somebody no, that you treat as property. you can't have love it's sees the, the same boundaries It's the same way that a professor can't have a consensual relationship with like an undergrad a student you you Come can't the power the power that no, you can't the power dynamic is
0: like you could take a little badge you take your position off and you know a,
1: a ceo can't have a consensual relationship with like uh you know you're you're down the bottom hourly worker it can't be Shouldn't. because Shouldn't. because there's because there's there's an okay do you ever watch it's always sunny in philadelphia
0: i know it but i have not watched it now
1: so there's a great scene where, uh, where one of the characters, Dennis and Mac are, are in this, uh, they're, they're buying a boat and, uh, and they're in like the, the little boat shop or whatever. And they're looking around and, and Dennis is explaining why he's excited to have a boat. And, and he says, you know, he's like, you know, it's great. You, you invite a couple women, women can't resist a boat. You get a couple women out there, a couple, a couple of hotties out there and, and you're out in the, the open ocean. And then, you know, you make your move and you, uh, you, you go, you, you make your move, whatever. And then, uh, you know, and then what's he say or whatever he's, then he says, you know, you're whatever, I can't remember what his thing is. He's, you know, but he's like, you know, and then you're, you're getting it on with this, with these couple of hotties or whatever. And oh, yeah. Max says, well, and Max says, well, what if they say no? He's like, well, they won't say no. He's like, well, well, you know, how you, why not? He's like, because of the implication. <laughs> he's like,
0: well,
1: what? What, do you, what? He says, what do you, what do you mean? well, you're out in the middle of the ocean, you know, you're just like a, a guy with these women you just met and you're out, you got them out in the middle of the ocean, there's no one around, nobody can hear them, nobody can see them. You know, they're not going to say no because of the implication. He's like, uh, kind of sounds like you're talking about rape. Rape, no, nobody's talking about rape. He's like, no, I'm just saying that they wouldn't say no because of the implication. He's like, it really sounds to me like you're threatening these women with death if they don't sleep with you. He's like, no, what? No, no, I'm just saying that they, they won't say no because of the implication.
2: The whole purpose of buying the boat in the first place was to get the ladies nice and tipsy topside so we can take them to a nice, comfortable place below deck and, you know, they can't refuse because of the implication. Oh, uh, okay. You had me go in there for the first part. The second half kind of threw me. Well, dude, dude, th- think about it. She's out in the middle of nowhere with some dude she barely knows. You know, she looks around, her. what does she see? Nothing but open ocean. Ah, there's nowhere for me to run. What am I going to do, say no? Okay, that... <laughs> that seems really dark now. No, no, it's not dark, you're misunderstanding me, bro. Okay? I'm, I'm, I think I yeah. am. Yeah, you are, <laughs> because if the girl said no, then the answer obviously is no. No. But the right. thing is is she's not gonna say yeah. She would never say no because of the implication. Now, you've said that word implication a couple of times. What okay. implication? The implication that things might go wrong for her if she refuses to sleep with me. Now, not that things are gonna go wrong for her, but she's thinking that they will but it sounds like she doesn't want to have sex why aren't sex with you, you understanding this. i don't she she doesn't know whether she wants to have sex with me it's that she doesn't that's know not the issue so are you she, gonna she hurt could be a, i'm not gonna hurt oh, these women okay. why would i ever hurt these women I, don't I, I feel like you're not getting this at all i'm at not all. getting it god damn
1: and i'm like that's the problem with these power dynamics if if the ceo of of you know ceo or like whatever some some person in authority is is uh, it's in a relationship with like somebody who's at the bottom of the the of the ladder because the implication <laughs> is if you say no you lose Get your out job of
0: here. that's crazy nah, i'm saying it's That's insane it, that's it's insane it's, there's, it is, there's
1: there's a reason that that is ruled as as an improper
0: you're it's so improper of it. for that reason it's improper uh, how do you for not see that reasons? no it's improper because of a lot of different reasons that you should have the relationship in a workplace but well but if you're peers it's fine do you have, do you ever think about how in general how much easier life is for a beautiful woman mm-hmm. have you ever mm-hmm. taken time to really look no and i'm not talking i'm not saying that beautiful women don't have issues i'm not saying they don't have you know mental problems and all this other. Stuff. i'm not saying that but if you look generally over the, over, you know, if you just look at the population and just study beautiful women, and I don't think that I'm not, and I think we all can agree that there's beautiful women and there's not beautiful women. I'm not saying that, you know, heavier women aren't beautiful without all the political crap. There's beautiful women out there and there's ugly women. And the beautiful women, if you compare their their trajectory, have a much easier life. They get job offers more often. They get more offers for, say, for example, marital um, offers, like more men are after them. Um, They get to pick and choose that kind of thing. And they tend to marry up, I would say, financially speaking. Um, I I don't know if any studies have been done, but I just I think it's interesting. It's very interesting. You know, and and you see it like, especially when you see wealthy men, whether it's a sports athlete or whatever, and they tend to all have beautiful, beautiful wives, right? You don't really see many athletes with a, with a butt ugly woman under their arm. And so the men in our society who have money typically or status, um, whether it's professionally or or in society in some way, they have the pick of the litter and they have the pick of the litter of the beautiful women, you know, and I just find it interesting how, you know, I think beautiful women in general, you know, they have, they have it much easier, put it that way, than, than, others
1: i mean maybe i mean you're you're equating you're you're, you're 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 equating material know
0: if you'd ever know well, you're that.
1: equating material possessions to uh to to ease but sure. i'm not sure that sure. I, uh, i'm not sure i mean there's a degree, there's course. a degree to which that's true but i also think there's you know i don't know um you know there's a hollowness to it that uh you know i'm, I'm glad i don't have i mean anyway sure. listen let me finish this thing
0: oh i thought
1: you were no god damn it i like. I was just wrapping it up. You killed me. I'm like, oh, let me just let me just wrap it up so I can at least get it on tape. So okay. the last thing I'd said okay. was the uh, about the overseer having uh, having somebody ring the bell, blow the horn at four o'clock, get up in the mornings. Okay. So I'm just this is my just my conclusion. Yes. Yes. All right. Good practice. Paternalism, racial stereotypes, and efficiency combined to form planner strategies for regulating their plantations. In part two, we're going to look at how enslaved people both resisted and acquiesced to these strategies different ways. For now, that's going to do it for part 1 of the Devil in the Belfry uh unbalanced views episodes. Good times and bad, the devil in the 19th century south. So uh th- this is where I was going to say hey, Mike what do you think? But uh I think I have enough B-roll to fill that in. Uh unless actually yes. no. What what do you think? What do you think? What what do you think so far?
0: I think uh I well, um like I said, it's an interesting time. I'm always very captivated and interesting about these times and how these people lived. Um, I'm interested in, you know, not just what we are taught and told to think about the time and the people, but how, what they thought about, how they thought, how they lived. Interesting. Very interesting. Looking forward to part
1: two. I think it's really cool how they, uh, I think it's interesting to see how like the language evolves and like, uh, so I'm, I'm, I know it's a. like, it's a little bit kind of abstract, but I really think it's, it's wild how they like, uh, all these people start like, uh, using the language of time, uh, In describing distance, in describing, you know, all these things. I mean, it it really, it sort of shows you how this, uh, this, there's a whole, it's, I mean, it really is. It's learning a new language. I mean, it's learning a new language and then applying that language.
0: With the time thing, you know, it's, it's also an advancement of travel. So if you're walking, you know, how far, how, how far is this? You're going to say it's a couple miles. If you're in a car, you're going to say that's about five minutes. Sure. I think. You know it, that that's interesting as well, but yeah, know, it's tran- yeah,
1: it changes because of transportation. It's certainly part of it, like uh, you know. But it, it is a it is it's very I don't know. Just even like the idea of like oh how many miles per hour is just like a whole measure that doesn't exist before before like <laughs> clock time. And um, I, like I said, the second part I I'm really excited about the second part. I you know I felt a little bit like man I I feel like I'm doing a lot of this like theoretical framework in the beginning. Uh, and it was a lot of that. It was it was more than I wanted to do, but I felt like I had to do, I had to lay all the, the groundwork in. I, at least I felt like I did because I kind of thought, well, but you know why? Because the whole time I was afraid you were going to be like, as soon as I started this topic, you're going to be like, yeah, they got clocks. That's the end of it. Like, what's the big deal? Um, okay. You know what I mean? Like, I thought I, I was like, I wasn't sure you were going to see the the kind of gravity of what it was. I'm trying, what I was trying to do. You know what I mean? Like what I'm trying to talk about, because it's because on the the one hand, it's really easy given a 21st century existence to be like, yeah, of course you're like, you work so many hours, you get paid so you get paid so much per hour. Of course you divide time that way, but it's like, it it wasn't always that way. And we're kind of at the beginning of when they're doing that and like, and looking at the South in particular, where that's not part of the calculus gives you a chance to kind of see how. The, the time consciousness comes in without calculating it. Like time is money, but they're not thinking of wages. You know what I mean? So it's like a, I don't know. It's yep. kind of an interesting thing.
0: So, so the answer to the, to the quiz tonight, Franz Anton Ketterer is who invented the cuckoo clock. Oh,
1: nice. Okay all right good to know
0: german german, orange, german. Yeah, boxes, germans german.
1: germans did a lot um i mean yeah. aside from trying to destroy german engineering the germans have tried to destroy the world a few times uh from the 30 years war to a couple of world wars you know it's kind of their thing um you know they uh they destroyed the catholic church they uh you know uh ushered in ushered in capitalism you know they've uh, they've done all that stuff um They, uh, they, they, or at least made the ground fertile for capitalism. It was really the Dutch, I guess, that did it, but the Dutch are just, the Dutch are basically just swamp Germans. So what's the difference? You know, um, you know, that's, that's what, uh, that's what the Netherlands means. Swamp Germany. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, I am going to, uh, I'm going to ring the proverbial bell or blow the official, uh, blow the horn and call it on this, uh, this, Officially constitutes what? Officially constitutes an episode of the Unbalanced Views of History podcast. The four hours or whatever that I've got recorded here—it's insane. Uh, Let's see. Let's see if you've done any practice or you remember anything, Mike. How can the people contact us?
0: Well, you can contact us at or on your favorite podcast, uh, wherever you wherever you find your favorite podcast. Pod Pod Bean is my favorite. So I'd go on there and look us up leave some comments like us share us with all of your friends and family and even some people you might not like we've got our you can email us as well sorry 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 as just see we've our got email. our we got our
1: cool new logo
0: up we've got a cool new logo ah oh, up that's and true. running that's
1: it's true. uh i gotta double check to make sure it's on Apple Podcasts, but it's up everywhere else so
0: I, I really like it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. And it took us. We we had to stand there and pose for that picture for quite some time. Well, um, so it was. I mean, uh, we had to get in the DeLorean, point.
1: <laughs> and then getting that thing up to eighty-eight miles an hour. I mean, that car is forty years old now. People don't realize it's uh, almost fifty. Uh, so you yes. know, it's uh, trying to get that thing to eighty-eight miles an hour was no small feat. You know how hard it is to find lead additive for a uh, for a gas tank. No, there was no light in that. Yes. There was, I think, it was unleaded. The flux, it's the
0: flux capacitor. Yeah, well, we it's didn't. Hard we hard didn't hard.
1: have a fancy flux it's capacitor that just up. uses garbage. We had to use a uh, actual fuel, and you know, um, set a three alarm fire behind us when we went. It was really a, a disaster. We came back, and our neighborhood of Twin Pines was called Lone Pine. It's really bad. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if you want to email us with any suggestions um and if you're a sponsor please you know email us we'll be we're, we're actually looking for some sponsors right now um miller light budweiser um you name it um we are uh we're open uh, and uh send what us, am i drinking here tonight send us your what, what is that
1: terrapin beer uh terrapin beer company in athens georgia or, uh, or of course, my local, my local um, first magnitude uh, Ursa that I uh, that I, I brought in to drink tonight, and then didn't get to. But uh, I brought a I brought a local beer from uh, from first magnitude first magnitude brewery in Gainesville, Florida. Ooh, it's a I a delicious it. IPA that I uh, will get to another night, but uh, didn't didn't make it through my didn't make it through my rounds to get to my Ursa. That's all right. And so, you can tweet uh, us at uh, at views unbalanced. Although uh, I haven't spent very much time on Twitter since uh, since it really got shitty. Um,
0: it's well, Twitter's. Um, it was really crappy, but now Elon. Oh is my god! It's much much. It's better. so awful. And um, yeah, I get I get
1: so I get so much bullshit in my uh, in my feed anymore. It's it's really it's like unusable anymore.
0: It it really it, I don't, it, it, I've never been on. Twitter. It, it
1: crashes all the time. I think that's just a good place to stop. Until next time.